the digital transition. Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, powered by Bond University's Building Information Modeling Program. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm talking with Chris Rizel from Dorofus about the impacts of data and digitization in the construction industry. But before I start my interview with Chris, I need to talk to you about our exclusive sponsor, Bond University are leading the way in BIM education in Australia through their Master of Building Information Modelling and Integrated Project Delivery course. They also have a suite of micro-credential offerings. Now, these courses were the first and remain the only courses to be formally accredited by Building Smart Australasia and were recognised internationally with a special mention for leadership in the Open BIM for in Education in the Professional Research category in the 2020 Building Smart International Awards. Head over to the Bond University website via link in the show notes to learn more about their educational offerings. Now on with the show. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today, Chris. Well, thanks for having me on today, Nathan. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Mate, I'm surprised that it's taken us uh, 50 episodes to actually get you onto <laughs> this podcast. And I know we've been talking about it for a few years. I think maybe COVID might have uh, caught us out because, we, you know, maybe there was this um, – digital border across over there in WA to, to prevent us from talking maybe as well, the, the hard border that they had over in WA. But Chris, for those of, that are listening to the podcast today and don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I'm Chris Rizal, the Managing Director at Drofus for the APAC region uh, and also Global Chief Revenue Officer. I started my career in the UK with Anshin Allen and HOK, working with superstars in the healthcare design space like Jane McElroy, Ken Schwartz, John Cooper, Mungo Smith, etc. Um, I then spent around four years in Vietnam, where I managed a team of architects in an outsourcing capacity. And uh, one notable project that we worked on was the National Museum of Qatar, designed by Jean Nouvelle. Um, it's such a cool building where the superstructure and the facade is made up of these 240 interlocking discs that were inspired by the Desert Rose. Uh, and I'd put it in the same league as the Sydney Opera House from a design perspective. In 2011, I moved to Sydney where I joined Hassel in a design technology leadership role, working together with BIM superstars like Toby Maple, Steve Furio, Jason Howden. Uh, and part of my role was to research and implement new technologies like Drofus, where, where, which we used on the Darling Harbour Live project. I then met Rolf, uh, the CEO of Drofus, at a, an Autodesk University event. And he then came to Australia a few months later to offer me a job. So, you know, I've been, I've been very lucky to work for some, some really great companies on iconic projects that put a real premium on technology working smart, being innovative. And it was really the perfect journey and, and training, if you will, for my role at Dorofus. Now, Dorofus, it's a very unusual term for some people, uh, people within the industry that have used the tool, obviously understand how powerful it is. But for 
for those that are listening, uh, probably in the asset management space, most of our listeners that may not have an awareness of what Dorofus does, uh, can you explain, first of all, what Dorofus is and the role that it plays across the design, delivery and uh, operation of built assets? So the elevator pitch for Dorofus is that we're a data management solution for the AECO industry. But, you know, digging a little bit deeper, we need to first qualify what we mean by data. Uh, you know, some confuse this with files and think that maybe we're an electronic document management system like AConnex or ProjectWise, something like that. But the kind of data that we're talking about is more granular. You know, there's lots of information created in the briefing stage of a project, the key functional needs, operational requirements, departments, rooms, size, occupancy numbers, etc. And so we provide a way to capture all of that information that can be then reused rather than it being in a PDF that everyone has to then read, interpret and re-enter into multiple different systems. That briefing information, of course, then informs the design uh, and often it has to be measured against, for example, you know, the, the brief area of a room versus the design area. And as we all know, the design is very much an iterative process. So that brief information evolves and, and gets updated and added to with design data. Um, normally, without our software, there is a handover to the builder at the start of the construction phase. And that information has to be rebuilt piece by piece from Excel, PDF, from models, et cetera. Whereas then with our software, we, we're building up a complete picture of what's required, plus the design information, and this then flows onto the builder to develop and evolve further during construction. We facilitate various downstream workflows, such as procurement, product and asset information capture, code QA checking, commissioning, et cetera, leading up to a comprehensive information handover to the building owner and the operations team. And more recently, our software started to be used in the operations phase as the master asset database. You'll be familiar with the term, the golden thread. Yep. It's a, a buzzword, maybe a bit overused, but, but we can actually deliver it. And, you know, that golden data can then be connected up with building management systems, FM, financial systems, et cetera, or form the foundation for a digital twin. And, and one other important point to note is that the FMers, they often say that when the, when the building's handed over, design and construction doesn't stop. It just, it just slows down. And so we enable extensions or refurbishment works to be undertaken much more easily. So you're perfect for our discussion today around data, right? You're the, we, we'll, we should call you the new data king maybe. That, that might be the new terminology <laughs> no. for Chris Rizal, the data I'll, king. I'll take whatever title you throw at me, mate. <laughs> well, be careful. You don't want that. You don't say just take anything. But one of the things I think that's really uh, challenging for our profession, all of the professions right now, and it comes across um, the biggest challenge we talk about is productivity. And we have a scenario right now in Australia where every conference you go to, first of all, the first type of graph that you'll see is the volume of work that has been kind of forward planned here in Australia, which is far greater than the volume of employment or capacity that we have as an industry. The second graph that I really want to have a chat to you about is 
the actual productivity graph of our profession. And the sad thing is, is that everyone kind of plays out that the the productivity of our profession is lagging behind everything else. Now, in your role within Dorofus, you're seeing people doing amazing things with data. And there's this invigorated kind of focus right now on digitization uh, across the AEC industries. Now, from your experience on the ground, you know, is these graphs real? Are these graphs real? Or, you know, is it is it just, is it fake news? Or, you know, where are we sitting with it? <laughs> it well, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think I think at a macro level, yes, the global construction industry is behind, but these macro level stats include many developing countries like India and Vietnam, where they're using diesel generators on site and still even use bamboo structures for scaffolding. I love seeing uh, them in, ba- in Bali, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But in the same breath, you know, BIM is exploding in India and Vietnam, so there's certainly progress. Um, I mean, I, I think we should almost break down productivity into a few different buckets. You know, there's there's digitization, as you say, innovation in construction methodologies, waste and pollution, energy efficiency, the longevity of buildings, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I think it's quite interesting what's happening in Nigeria, for example. Uh, it's the seventh largest population in the world, largest in Africa, and it's growing at three times the global average, yet life expectancy is around 53 years old. That's not good, is it? So, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, it's, that's not good at all if life expectancy is no. that and you've got that no. growth, right? Exactly. So, you know, right now, design might not be as digital as it could be. Construction might not be all that productive. But there's a heck of a lot of innovation that's going on, particularly in the digital fabrication and additive manufacturing space within Nigeria. So I believe the developing world will catch up very fast, partly due to globalization, but also mainly out of necessity. If we now talk about the developed world, of course, there's huge variances and it's by no means perfect, but I think it's 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 almost ironic that the type of conferences you and I attend where we hear these stats, ultimately they're preaching to the wrong choir. You know, if you if you live in Australia and you're working on a project without BIM or some form of digitization on the construction side, A, I think you're in the minority. And B, you maybe you should be looking for another job. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, Possibly, possibly. And from a from a personal perspective, at least, 100% of the projects that Dorofus are involved in are BIM projects. Likewise, our parent company, Nemechek Group, you know, their customers are highly digitized. So, yeah, you know, I know you've been doing BIM for 20 years. What's your take on this? Well, it, I find that really interesting. And, and I uh, one of the things that I thought from your commentary there about if you're not doing it or the majority are doing it, there was a report, and I'm trying to find it right now on my computer. I hate it when, uh, when I'm when I have a, a really um, a, a good commentary about things. And there was some research that was done from the Western Sydney University and the New South Wales government, and it was the an industry report on the digitization or digital digitalization. A new word, well, maybe I don't know. My English is, <laughs> is that's a new word to me of construction. Now the focus was on class two buildings because, as we're well and truly aware, in New South Wales, class two buildings have been experiencing a few problems. 
with within the construction with uh, you know buildings um, not being structurally sound and, and high defect rates. Now, one of the things that I found really interesting from this research is the volume of the profession, and we're talking about architects and building designers because building designers as well are in that class two category. And I think, Chris, like everything, it's one of those things where I'm, I know this is going to go off on a, on a unique rant in some ways, but, you know, sometimes <laughs> when we're going to these conferences, you said we're talking, to, we're preaching to convert it in some ways. That's kind of almost like on that uh, implementation graph of technology, you know, we're almost at that kind of cutting edge, bleeding edge, and we're so far ahead of the curve, we can't see behind us because they're, you know, they're not, they're not even in our stratosphere. The scary thing is, is that the volume of people that are delivering uh, projects, and I'm trying to find the magic number right now, is oh gosh. Whilst you're finding, while I'm digging, you can rebut. (laughs) Maybe I'll do a little sojourn. I mean, I think obviously there's a resource challenge within Australia and obviously many countries as well, but. People are smart. I mean, architects, builders, et cetera, it's not like they're Luddites. You know, they're they're smart cookies. And so I think the ability to adapt, the ability to learn is is actually very prominent. And um, so, yeah, I I don't think it has to be a barrier. Sure, it's it's an obstacle in the short-term sense, but it doesn't doesn't paint the future. No, I think that's the truth. The the scary thing is, is and now I found this magic magic uh, statistic that they pulled up from their research. But you know, general arrangement drawings for a class two building uh, in New South Wales, we're seeing only ten percent, uh, or BIM and other models as well. So if we put those together, we're talking fourteen percent of documentation being derived from BIM. That's kind of a, a, the, the class two construction sector is a very large sector in Australia. So the scary thing is, is we're not seeing that kind of drive from where there's a lot of bang for buck, right? The amount of amount of efficiency that can be gained from the marketplace in design and construction, it's almost as if we kind of, the question being is, is do they, do they not know what they don't know, or is it they go, I've got a I've got a I've got more other serious issues to deal with right now within my business? You know how when you're in a business situation and you've got to try and determine what's the most critical things that you've got to try and solve within your business at that point in time. And obviously the last few years, the 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 number one thing a lot of people are obviously worrying about is material supply, material costs, keeping the doors open so that those things don't occur. You and I both know that if they implemented digital processes, then that would provide them some efficiencies and savings. But of course, is that is the question being then, you know, based upon this research, they've got a long way to go. Well, yeah, you can't, you can't avoid that. But um, I mean, I think you're right. You've got to stratify it into different classes of buildings, let's say, yeah. um, and there may be further stratification within the, the classes to be fair as well. But um you know, class one buildings, if we can, if you can humor me and we make this gross assumption that the majority are BIM and digital, et cetera, you know, the class two is kind of the chewy middle. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly from my own personal experience, uh, the, the, the class three, if you will, like 
it's pretty commonplace that they'd be using, say, Archicad or Revit to design. You know, that that's actually really, really commonplace. You know, I'm, I'm actually in the process of building a house here in Perth, and they're using Archicad. Uh, that wasn't me selling it to them, by the way, but, you know, they're, they're using Archicad. And then you've got this whole kind of interface where you can make all your product selections. and It's just highly digitized. By no means is it perfect, but um, I, I think these these stats have to be taken with a bit of a grain of salt because certainly everyone I talk to in the industry um, is is well and truly on the digital path and on the BIM, BIM path as well. Yeah, and there are some mass home builders that I know that are some of the biggest customers of BIM software because they they need to do things highly efficiently to to enable the pricing of, of uh, stock homes to be able to be able to be delivered at an efficient rate. So exactly. maybe it'd be interesting to do a counterpointing uh, bit of research on that, but it, it diverged me quite a bit from where I wanted to go with this conversation. <laughs> and, and But it's just one of those things where it's like, where where it and and maybe it's that thing maybe it's a curve as well right so we've got we've got one end and maybe it's a curve where we have our class one builders that are that are doing their mass housing that are highly digitized we have the commercial sector that's highly digitized but then there's that missing middle and it seems to be a consistent kind of missing middle with a lot of different pieces of the puzzle not just from a bim state yeah i mean it, it it's I think with any statistics, you always have to take them with a grain of salt because what was the sample set? You know, yeah, yeah. Did, they, did they actually canvas the entire Australian market or was it, you know, those who responded to the survey sort of thing? So, you know, statistics are always with a point to prove in mind, um, not not to discredit what they did, but just um, is it a complete reflection? And, and 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 as we've been discussing, you know, our lived experience is maybe a bit different to that. And it's it's maybe not quite as drab and as grim as we all think it might be. Now, moving on to data, and one of the things that we're well aware of and, and the industry, well, not the industry, but the business that you're in, you know, you obviously recognise at Dorofus that uh, data is a big driver. In, in, in the industry today in terms of it's it's where, you know, I'd be interested to know whether or not there's a secret um, story within Dorofus about, uh, you know, data being worth equivalent to, to oil. <laughs> <laughs> but the challenges that we face obviously within the construction industry is that it's we, we're well aware that it's not as well integrated as many other industries. Do you think because of that challenge we have of the the kind of dispersed nature that we have as an industry overall that this data does actually have the the potential value that it does say, for example, in the banking or the finance sectors or in insurance sectors? Absolutely. You know, I think you and I lived through the early BIM days where it was a bit of a struggle. You know, if you were the architect and you want to do BIM because it makes your life easier, go for it, but I'll pay you the same fees. But then what happened was that the builders saw value and ultimately wanted more from the design team in a way that would support their own activities. Fast forwarding to today, you know, we're in a place where owners are much more aware of the, of the possibilities and much more on board. So that relationship it is changing from 
draw, build, hand over your CD and three-ring binder to sit on a shelf and gather dust to design for whole-of-life outcomes, energy efficiency, and a more digital method of operations where we're also systems are connected. Yep. But I think I do think one of the big challenges is through data collaboration. You know, there's there's still this hesitancy to provide your data in a system and in a structure that's most effective for the project overall. People fall back on, you know, I, I just want to do it the way I've always done. Um, and that's not an easy transition to make. You know, it's easy for me to say that in a sort of throwaway sense, but there's protocols, there's procedures, there's downstream workflows, all of that's affected. You know, you can't make that change overnight. Um, I mean, one thing we've been thinking about and considering recently is, is the concept of value streams. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's lots of different workflows. Uh, ultimately, those workflows should improve efficiency and, and quality, et cetera. And whilst there's benefits to those individual workflows, it's actually when you combine them into a value stream that we see significantly more value than the workflows in isolation, that, that classic line of, you know, the, the sum of the individual parts. As I say, it, it's, it's certainly a challenge for us. We do so much in our technology and in our software that getting our customers to grasp that can be a challenge in of itself. But uh, I think the key point I'm trying to make here is that there is almost this requirement to not just think of oneself, but actually the project. And, you know, certainly from back in my early days in architecture, the project, it was like a newborn baby almost, you know, you had to care for it, you had to nurture it and and realize that, you know, you and the rest of the design team and the, the builder, et cetera, are all trying to, you know, create and, and, and gestate this beautiful thing that's going to come into life at some point. So even though, you know, if you get woken up in the middle of the night by your baby, of course, you're not happy, but there is this concept of a greater good. Do you think, and this is one of the things I think about quite a bit, and I have had conversations with Emma Hooper from Bon Brian a couple of years ago around this, is procurement the challenge? Because everyone is in a situation where they're paid only a certain amount of money and risk is kind of tried to be kind of tossed out of their own. Everyone, Everyone's trying to toss risk out of their basket into someone else's basket. Do you think that and I'm, and I'm an architect that's come through 20 years of my profession with traditional procurement. So I've got traditional procurement in my bones and I know that com- compared to design and construct, the results for the asset owner are always 10 times better. The challenge is moving into this new future and I like the comment you said about everyone kind of struggling to kind of change the way that they do things or thinking of the greater good. Do we need to finally make a jump and a leap and they're successfully doing these sorts of things in the UK right now where they have integrated project insurance. Now, I don't know how that works from an insurance perspective. I don't know how it kind of concerns me about the way in which uh, profit sharing and risk sharing occurs because obviously level of risk and reward is going to be different depending upon the volume of contribution that someone could have on a project. Is that what that might is that the is that the driver that's actually going to make the difference potentially? Well, it's certainly a complex area, and um, as you say, the kind of risk reward integrated project delivery 
method um i i, I certainly buy into uh, i think there's if, if you've got skin in the game you're far more inclined to get a good result uh, and you know you think about all the conversations that you might have outside of those procurement methods and butting of heads and whatever else and it, it does it does dissipate maybe it doesn't completely go away but it certainly does does dissipate if you've got the right contractual vehicle it's it's tough it's tough because as you say there are all those challenges around insurances and and various other things as well but um but yeah i mean ultimately if if you're only if you've got the blinkers on you're only concerned with you know your part of the sausage making process mm. uh, rather than the you know you're on the conveyor belt so to speak and you're not concerned about a sausage actually being produced at the end and eaten it's very difficult to uh to move outside of that yeah it's i just think that one answer to this question would be that one of the, the problem is is with the way the governance structure works with the government right is that because it's driven by policy and politicians, politicians don't want to do experiments. They, they, their role within the within the machine is essentially to produce policy that is low risk to enable them to be re-elected. <laughs> you know, the hard thing will be is finding a you know a private client, for example, that is not scared of that experiment. They they they'll see that there might be a better built outcome for them. It's almost like we need kind of some kind of angel investor type approach to demonstrate this somewhere locally here in Australia to then enable the whole of the industry to progress forward somehow or other. Well, you know, uh, recently here in WA, Mark McGowan uh, just stepped down, etc. Yes. as Premier. So um, I think he'd be a pretty good candidate to spearhead this kind of stuff he wasn't afraid of taking big risks <laughs> <laughs> he, he liked to he liked to uh he liked to i think he was i think the thing was is he was scared of the risk of one thing which then led to him driving such a hard approach to certain things and it's it's a <laughs> <laughs> we're getting into the politics here mate we probably should uh that's a different that's, that that's, that's a different poli- that's a different podcast series right but so we talked about obviously potential for procurement to drive uh, greater efficiency and greater value of information and data. It's actually been a few years since I've spoken about Open BIM on this actual podcast and the industry as a whole has actually been on quite a journey over the last decade. You know, we're starting to see major assets and infrastructure being delivered, delivered using that kind of uh, – the open BIM and IFC approach. Uh, and thankfully that's driving, you know, people becoming more capable uh, in actually working, collaborating with it. Do you actually think, you know, because you're in a, in a, in a situation in Dreyfus where you're actually working on most of the major built assets, I don't know about the infrastructure side, but, you know, $3 billion, um, I don't know, casinos maybe, something similar like that. Um, do you think that, the industry would have been success would be successful, and I guess it's not finished being constructed yet. But do you think we'd be successful in delivering these major projects that are currently being delivered without this data interoperability, and we'd you know sitting on a single platform? You might be surprised by my answer here, but yes, but they would have taken longer and cost more. You know, it's, it's the age old kind of pyramids argument. Yep. 
stuff's always going to get built, but it's, you know, what's the cost? Mm-hmm. I think 10 years ago, open BIM was, was maybe a bit of a hard sell, partly due to technology, but also just people's motivation, if we're honest. Five years ago, open BIM really started to gain some traction. And today I would say it's a necessity for any major project. Coordinating and federating different models from different authoring applications is, is of course, a critical part of that. But there's so many other systems in play. You know, quantity surveyors used to spend 90% of their time measuring. Yeah. uh, And that's dropped down dramatically so they can do those higher value tasks. Procurement systems, they're, they're of course, got a a need to reuse information rather than someone busy on the keyboard re-entering it all again. Uh, the builder can sequence deliveries, construction activities, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I definitely think we've we've made some great strides. And I, I do firmly believe that Open BIM is the only way to deliver a major project these days. One of the things we've been focusing on is this idea of the kind of data round trip from mm-hmm. design to procurement to construction, and, and really importantly, then kind of almost completing that loop with capturing of the project, uh, sorry, the product and asset data, the, the AIRs, so that you get this comprehensive handover. For me, that's a bit of a missing link at the moment. You know, we're doing all this collaboration, interoperability, right up until that point, and then you go and put it off into this other system, which is a silo disconnected from everything else. And actually the output you get from it is, is pretty, pretty rubbish anyway. Um, you know, in terms of annuals and asset register, et cetera. So I think, you know, that, as I say, that's one of the focuses for us right now is, is connecting and getting these, these data round trips happening. And I, I hate to say it, but you know, one of the tragedies today still, even on BIM projects, is that the owner goes out with clipboards on the day the building's open uh, to prepare the asset register. So, you know, we're, we're falling short and, um, you know, hopefully Drofus will will look to address that quite soon. But um, I know you feel very strongly about open bin. Where, where do you think we're at? <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, I've, I've delivered projects collaboratively with, and we're talking, you know, at the time, I think they were $70 million, so they're probably worth around 200 now with full consultant teams. And I think, to be honest with you, there's some really interesting lessons that I've learned that, you know, I'm, I'm running a couple of different uh, uh, webinars at the moment where I'm asking people from within the industry to kind of nominate topics that they're struggling with. And some of the things that are coming up, I think, uh, are issues that, I dealt with with over a decade ago. So the positive thing is, is that people are asking the questions now. One of the things that I've found quite interesting recently, and this is one of the biggest challenges I think that Open BIM has to be successful. And imagine a scenario where one party is using a uh, software, and on the other side you have all of the other consultants using another software suite. So that means that the overall project cannot be delivered using a native outcome, which then means exchanges need to occur in an IFC format. And some of the things that I thought about, you know, that I know I had conversations with over a decade ago where we would be sending files to uh, another party and it would take literally a day to open um, an IFC in that tool. 
Now, one of the things I think that's the biggest challenges right now is that ability for a file to almost be instantaneously loaded in either software. I think to me that's where the whole thing is falling over right now. And and that's just me kind of doing a full circle. As much as I'm massive, one, probably one of the biggest advocates for OpenBIM around the world because it means that anyone can choose the software that they want that enables their business to thrive. But the challenge at the moment I feel is that seeing how long it takes for that file to be loaded into the software. On these are on the major projects. On the small projects, it's very quick and easy. So you're not losing much time. And it's big. It's gotten to a point where I, you know, I've been observing some of the activities on some major projects, and what's actually occurring is is that in on the instance where there's a single party using a different software, the actual answer to delivering that project successfully is having one party on the other side converting it to a, to the native file on the other side, and then tr- and then sharing that file around the other parties that are all on that same tool to remove that challenge where, you know, you might have half a dozen people doing that task of opening it up on their software and converting it from IFC to native. And you're basically six timing it. So it's kind of crowdfunding the conversion process. So to me, that now in my mind as one of the biggest open BIM (laughs) supporters or, or promoters around the world is that that to me is where, we need to solve the problem. And once we get to that point, I think then we will have the value that that Open BIM can bring to data and information exchange, you know. And I don't know how challenging it is from the perspective of transmitting of data, but I know when you're dealing with a mass of geometry on these major projects, that's where we're struggling. I, I do know what you mean, but back in the day, triangulation and all that kind of good stuff was, was the hot topic. Yeah. Um, but we've, we've kind of moved past that largely, not maybe completely, but, but largely at least. I, I do know what you mean though, uh, in terms of the, the practical application of this. Um, but to be honest though, you know, we, we've been involved in some work recently on a major project in South Australia and, and even just opening the native uh, files in the actual, I'm not going to try not to mention any particular <laughs> names here, but well, even opening, I didn't. <laughs> the native, opening the native files in the model authoring tool, um, it takes a long time, you know, uh, just just the sheer nature of the size of them, and it, particularly when you're using all the kind of other bolt-on sort of technologies that come with that in terms of hosting and, and whatever else. So... I, I do agree it's certainly a challenge, but I, 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 I maybe go as far as saying, though, I don't think it's a blocker. And there is this, you know, coming back to this whole thing of data has to be, well, sorry, models and geometry has to be passed between various systems freely. Yes. Uh, and, and so that's one part of the challenge. To your point about the data, that, that's almost the easy part, at least from Dorofa's perspective, because... We can communicate with with Archicad, with Revit, with IFC. Uh, we've, we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years developing out our API, so connecting with other systems, all of that kind of stuff is is very easy now. And as I say, I mean, from from my seat at least, 
passing some data, which might be, you know, a few bytes of information uh, and we're much more transactional yes, rather than this enormous model with, you know, gigabytes of geometry. It, it's a lot easier for us in the data sphere at least. Yeah, and I think to, to my mind, I think the future needs to be with regards to information that these models essentially are light. And the, the methodology I've been talking to a lot of people about over the last couple of years has been you only have the information that you need to produce a set of documents, which is our still our traditional deliverable that we need to achieve as in the design end. But then the rest of that information doesn't live in the model, but it lives on a database, which is then connected to the, those elements because then that information can be handled by people that are not model authors. It can be adjusted and added and, and edited and and contributed to by multiple actors without actually having to have an expensive tool like, you know, a modelling tool that these things, they like charging us quite a bit for each year. But it's it's kind of pertinent, I guess, that it kind of moves on to kind of my next question in, in many ways because obviously the biggest concern I have is time because sadly that's what us, every every consultant in the industry needs to try and do things quicker. And then if we have tools that hinder us from moving quickly, uh, it's going to make things really difficult. Now, obviously we're talking at a time where we've had, I can't remember, it might even be 15 cons- consecutive uh, interest rate rises. I, I've, I've almost forgotten it's been that, Matt. Too many. Too I, many. I know it's hurting my mortgage and and, oh. and you're in a, in a position of uh, uh, building, your, building a home right now. I'd hate to be in that scenario because it kind of feels like Russian roulette every day. Is, is the builder uh, still above ground today? Um, <laughs> you know, we've got the scenario where we're, f- we're not fighting with our software, but we, we would, we're trying to get the best out of it. You know, we've got interest rates going up, construction material costs skyrocketing, builders going under once, you know, every week, you know, and the challenge being that everyone's fighting for the same sort of work and, and it's, turning this this whole scenario kind of into a race to the bottom and and that's what we're seeing do you think and 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 putting your strategic hat on and and knowing that you've been within the industry on the delivery side yourself but now you're on the kind of support side of of industry rather than actually on delivery you know do you think that the industry could turn itself around with tools that 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 you have and there's other tools around the industry where data and information can actually become that kind of gold that clients actually are willing to pay for and it becomes a competitive edge for a team to propose to deliver, you know, not just this physical asset but the digital assets in a, in a better way. Is that, the, is that the thing that's going to turn us around? Maybe. I like um, that. I like that. It, it's, it's like a caveat. I'm going, to, I'm going to say that I can do this and then go at the end, this, this, thing, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is a big potential not, not endorsed. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. You and I were at a conference last year where you were the moderator for a panel discussion I was on. Um, I think I scared the life out of the audience with a bunch of stats around the global supply chain. Uh, I was referencing stuff from this this guy, Peter Zihan. So Russia and Ukraine are top global exporters of things like natural gas, uranium, crude oil, coal, copper steel, nickel, iron, aluminium, titanium, platinum, et cetera. Just a few things. Just a few things, all of which play a role in the construction industry. And as well as just the general supply chain issues, 
those raw materials also have to be manufactured into products that we use for construction. And there's even an intermediary step. In the US, they don't have the facilities to convert those raw materials into you know, things like, say, pig iron, which is then, then used to go on to create pipes and other construction materials. Developing those facilities is going to take three plus years to bring online. So, you know, if we fail to double the size of the industrial plant, we're looking at nine to 15% inflation for the next few years, or we will participate in the fastest economic growth in our history. I'm, I'm an optimist, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to veer on that side. Um, and as a practical local example, as you say, I'm, I'm currently building a house and found out that actually much of the timber we use in Australia come came from Russia. Obviously, that's kind of off the table now. Or you're going to pay additional levies and, and heavy taxes for Russian-based timber. So our builder, they kind of pivoted and decided to use blue scope steel for the wall framing. That uh, they're already partly doing this. They weren't starting completely from scratch, but they decided to switch over 100 percent at the start of the war. Uh, and they've been expanding their own sort of production capabilities as well. But anyway, back to your original question, how can data help? I think it comes down to realizing the value. You know, owners are starting to see the, the, the value of good data in terms of timelines, budget control, and, and reuse of information, not only during design and construction, but also into the operations phase partly by having more efficient buildings, but also managing operational costs like power, cooling, et cetera. I'll exaggerate to prove a point that you used to power up the entire building, switch on every light and, and turn on the air conditioning. But now you can be you know, a bit more of a sniper and only power up the areas that will actually be used based on occupancy. Um, but the elephant in the room is that Design and construction teams ultimately are being asked to do more, but the fees haven't changed. Yeah. We we have a case study, uh, the Helse Bergen Hospital project in, in uh, Norway, and they employed, you know, full BIM digital uh, processes on the project. They literally had no paper on the site. And that's that's not me just saying that in a kind of whimsical sense. It was it was actually true and lived and breathed by everyone. So no paper on site. That's a fairly major milestone to achieve. And now they're using Dorofus and and also a technology called StreamBIM to actually operate the facility as well. They only got the building they wanted. It was on time. It was on budget. And they've reduced the number of systems that they actually need to operate the facility. So they're saving money and getting a better outcome. There's uh, there's no smoke without fire though, of course. And, and so, you know, consultant fees in Australia are what, around four, four and a half percent, something like that, if you're lucky. Uh, and, and it was more like 7% that the consultants, et cetera, were getting on this project. So I think once this understanding of the value of data uh, and the true downstream benefits is actually realised, this has to be married up with the actual fees. Now, I've had some conversations going back to the start of this series, which it aired, but I actually had the conversations in, in September, October last year with um, with some of the colleagues that came over from the UK and Alexandra Bolton and Mark Coates. 
And one of the interesting kind of takeaways, I think, from that conversation, and the sad thing is, is probably the people that listen to this podcast interview right now are still, in some ways, we're half preaching to the con- half converted, right? But for the data value to increase exponentially, it needs to generate some ongoing savings that everyday people can see. And I honestly believe, imagine, and, and because I like it, I like data and I like analysis, I like kind of pulling numbers apart and seeing how things work. I can imagine the algorithms that could be set up and run if a design or a as-built asset was handed over to the financier or to the insurer of that asset and said, this is everything within this asset. And then their software would be able to then determine, um, you know, the the likelihood of an asset of that type with this material, this product, all of those certain, th- certain things of it in that location based upon, you know, the where it's sitting geographically, whether it's going to flood, whether it's bushfire prone, all that sort of stuff. They could tune insurance premiums right to the cent, I reckon, even to the point where imagine, and this is some of the things where it could push things too far the other way, and I had other conversations with some people standing at an event six months ago, and imagine that at the end of concept design or even a site evaluation, you could say if I was to build a building on this site, what would be the potential you know, with this kind of thing, with with based upon the insurance thing that they use today, at, at before you purchase a site, you go, this is the thing, what would be the potential insurance issues? So people could actually do that insurance due diligence before they started. Then imagine at the start of concept design or in the middle of, or at the end of concept design, that model got fed into an insurance calculator. Then they could understand, you know, if I choose option one, two or three, which one's actually going to be the best for me from these sorts of costs. You know, we talk about life cycle analysis. A lot of people are fixated on carbon. I'm actually just fixated on resources. These resources are finite. So the more we build the, there's, there's going to be less of this resource. It's not like the, the, the holes that we dig in the ground are going to just um, resupply like they do on some video games, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but I think that's the challenge. We're sitting there fixating on on carbon, but it's not carbon. It's, well, there's only so much mineral in the ground that's going to create steel. There's only so much oil. And, yes, we do need these things. But I think that imagining a scenario where we design, where designs can get put through with this information so a consultant team could be generate so much more value if they could design a, an asset that actually is an asset rather than a liability for a client. I don't know. Am yeah. I overthinking it too far from my end? I don't, I don't think you're overthinking it. It's it's a complex issue and there's a lot of nuance. Um, back when I first started working in architecture, I, I was always just dumbfounded by the amount of pollution effectively that went into the production, particularly of concrete. I yep. mean, if of course, it's not as simple as this, but if you removed concrete from the construction industry, the world would be a way better place from a green perspective. I think you're right. There's there's some merit in trying to reuse existing buildings. You know, most most buildings are over-engineered in terms of their kind of capacity capability. So I think the idea of actually refurbishing existing buildings rather than just simply knocking them down, that's that's certainly got some 
part of this overall formula. It almost sounds counterintuitive, but timber frame construction as well, forests are able to be replanted. Of course, it's, it sounds really bad to say that we're going to you know, cut down and use more wood in construction, but there's all sorts of interesting stats about you know, the rainforests and uh, people just have this assumption that we're now in a place which, like compared against 10 years ago, the Amazon and various other places, uh, they've gone through huge deforestation. There's actually been net increases, which doesn't get talked about as much. So, you know, there are sustainable methods um, out there, of course, and I, I don't think you're overthinking it. I think that for me, one of the really big challenges for us still to address is our reliance on concrete because it is hugely polluting to pre- produce it in the first instance. Uh, you know, you, you're then also somewhat fixed in terms of um, having to sort of demo and, and rebuild versus, you know, more sustainable. And, and almost, again, it's a very easy thing to say whimsically in a podcast, but more sort of um, Lego-like structures yeah. that are able to maybe be disassembled. I mean, uh, one example, my my brother... He he was part of the Olympic Delivery Authority in London uh, back in 2012. And they had a basketball stadium, which was built up, but it was in a very much modular sense. And then I think they, at the end of the games, they dismantled it and shipped it over to Canada. You know, they're able to actually reuse that exact same facility, not just within the same country, but in a completely different uh, continent. You know, that's, I think that's what we're going to have to get better at doing uh, reusing of existing facilities rather than just demoing likewise more demountable reusable structures as well but it's certainly a big challenge it is too much a big challenge but because we've been talking so much about data today and we have to talk about the hottest topic in the world right now we're not going to talk about digital twins for once (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but we're going to talk about the, the 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 next sexiest topic that everyone wants to talk about, is, and it's and it is something that I think is important when we talk about information, talk about data, and and uh, let's move on to AI. Now, I don't like calling it AI. I I still think it's it's kind of similar how everyone likes to call anything that used to be called BIM. Half the half of the the BIM uses now are digital twins, and I'm like I, I really get angry about that. So at this point in time, I want to call AI machine learning still. And I'd, and I'd be interested to see whether you disagree with me on that point. But how do you think that AI, and I know it's still kind of early days, and we've got to kind of think, you know, where we are today and where things are going a couple of years and then obviously a decade's time. How do you think AI could kind of transform, I guess, the way in which information can be utilised to potentially design better? Uh, document better, construct things better, or you know, operate our built assets. Well, I'm going to disagree with you. You know, you gave me the title earlier. What was it? The the king of data, or maybe <laughs> maybe a better one would be king of the data nerds. But um, <laughs> I'll make sure I write that one down. <laughs> for me, machine learning is about recognizing patterns and you know being able to repeat or enhance or automate repetitive tasks. AI is a bit different because it's ultimately where a computer starts to mimic human behavior. So to the point where you then actually struggle to differentiate between the AI and the human input. 
so if we start thinking about this in a design and construction industry context, generative design has been around for a while now, uh, and it's already having an impact, but it could totally transform the industry. I mean, you know, you're a smart guy and, and open to these sort of crazy ideas that people come up with, but you could open up an architectural practice with skeleton staff and then really embrace generative design rather than, you know, just endless people modeling stuff uh, to death sort of thing. So you could actually employ, you know, generative design. And, and then the architects in a way become more the curators and the client interface. Uh, you know, I think there's a there's a business model there, and I mean, I don't want to scare any architects that are on the on the or listening to the podcast now. But you know, if you're endlessly modelling stuff and drawing the same lines on a piece of paper endlessly, that has got a shelf life. There's no there's no two ways about it. In construction, again, I could I could envisage a future where the procurement of product products, the scheduling of deliveries pouring of concrete, insulation of fixture, fixtures on site, all of that happens autonomously and with, with robots, et cetera. You would still need some human oversight. Uh, so maybe that's more like an advanced machine learning type setup, uh, machine learning enhanced workflows than true AI. Um, but I, I think that could be a reality in the next five years. You know, there's, there's pockets of this kind of stuff happening already. But yeah, I think ultimately... AI, not to be confused with machine learning, you know, is, is this this whole thing of being able to not discern between human and computer-related input. And I think that's certainly true in the, in the sense of generative design, but all the other stuff, um, you know, construction, yes, using robots, but are they artificially intelligent versus programmed to do so? And, and again, moving into the operations sphere, having a building that has almost got this sense of being where it is responding to, and, and again, there's been examples of this, particularly within Australia. We're, we're big on sun shading, of course, having a facade. Uh, uh, you probably saw this as well. I think it was Fahad uh, Tahani who, you know, had this, had this um, facade system, which was, you know, adaptive from a sun shading perspective based on the, the conditions and the time of day, et cetera, you know, so that sort of stuff is happening already, but likewise from an operations sense, getting to the point where you're able to know what the temperature is in your geographical location for the day ahead and set the systems accordingly, not just at a macro building level, but also based on these meeting rooms have been booked out by whoever we know they're going to be around, uh, going to be utilized at this particular point in time, et cetera. So, I, I think we'll move to a point where buildings actually are to some extent alive. Um, you know, I joked about this idea when we were talking earlier about a, a project being a bit like a baby, you know, the designers where we're in charge of getting the baby uh, born, if you will. Um, but then during the operations phase, there's got to be this idea that it's, it's able to be self-sufficient. It will need nurturing. You know, you don't deliver a baby on your own. That's a, a fool's errand. And likewise, a baby needs some human interaction and parental care in its early formative years, et cetera. But you, you're ultimately getting the point where it could become self-sufficient. So 
all of us in the industry are going to become uh, <laughs> birthing. I'm trying to think of a good way to phrase this now, but are going to be, you know, birthing and early formative year specialists maybe in the future. Who knows? Oh, I'm, I, I actually really like the analogy and I'm sitting there thinking to myself now, now how do we talk about conception? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a whole nother, that's a whole nother matter. No, I, I actually think that's a that's a really uh, interesting way at looking at it, and 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 it's not just about buildings themselves, but in terms of the journey of AI, right? Because it's actually going to be those things where people create the foundation, but then educate it to the point where it then becomes mature enough to understand itself. And I think, to to my mind, and and I don't know if you stole it from someone, Chris, but. I reckon um, that's that's a talk or a paper in itself. I think in terms of an analogy, I actually really like it. So you might be the uh, the the father of uh, of conception of AI. I don't know how we'll change your we'll change your title. <laughs> well, I, I I'll be honest. I mean, I made a few notes, of course, and had a few talking points coming into this, but that that was on the fly. So uh, we'll um, you better do, something you better, here. You better do some research to see if no one's tried that one before. But in all honesty, <laughs> I think that to, from my mind, I think that's. Uh, it, it's it's something that rings true with me, and I, that's one of the things I try to use a lot as analogies with what people understand. And and to be honest with you, I think that's one of the best analogies I've heard with regards to AI and its journey and its learning curve. So um, hopefully, kudos to you. Thanks, mate. <laughs> but Chris, mate, it's been a great conversation around information and data today. Um, so thanks very much for your time. Very welcome. Now I've got one final question for you, and it's one that I asked all my guests: What does BIM mean to you? Opportunity. You know, I think we live in an age where technology it isn't really the blocker anymore. It is arguably people and our capacity to deal with change. Um, but human nature is inquisitive. You know, we adapt. And now is the best time in history to be alive. You know, so BIM, digital engineering, data, AI, it's going to transform our future. Uh, I think for the better. No, 100% agree. So thanks once again for your time today, Chris. Thanks, Nathan. So for more information on Chris and Dorofus, please head over to the podcast section on the Skewed website for further reading. Now, this is our 50th uh, podcast, which I think is a bit of a milestone, and it's our last podcast for this series, so we'll be taking a short break. Um the key thing to note is that, you know, over this break time there's uh, a lot of episodes you can catch up on and I'm very grateful to the guests that I've had over the last 50 episodes along with the support that we've had from the community in terms of the listeners and, and getting the feedback uh, when I'm out and about at all of the events around Australia uh, telling me what they've learnt from the conversations or, or, the, or the topics and how important they are. So... Uh, over the break, enjoy catching up on the episodes that you may have missed and uh, good luck with your digital transition powered by Bond University's Building Information Modelling Program. Digital transition.